You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Hi, I'm Joseph Ibrahim. Welcome to this special podcast. As you would have already heard the previous podcast on locking down now and locking down hard and how to make a lockdown humane, explored the issues around the practices we need to keep COVID out of our nursing homes. We reached out to Ian Yates, the Chief Executive Officer of COTA, the peak body in Australia representing older people. Ian has a wealth of experience and has been in discussions at senior levels within government around the issues of lockdown as well as discussions with COTA's constituents. He brings new insights into some of the challenges in maintaining a strict lockdown. And we were very fortunate to get him in his very busy schedule. So without any further ado, here is the interview. Welcome, Ian, and thanks for spending the time with us today. Pleased to do so, Joe. Ian, about two to four weeks ago, when I first heard about lockdown in residential aged care, I was horrified and thought that it'd be the most awful thing to isolate older people, given the traumas and travails they've been through over the years. Since that time and since I followed the COVID pandemic, my, my mind's almost gone completely 180 to a strict lockdown, because I think our best chance is to stop the virus getting in. Given the state of emergency that we're currently in and the Royal Commission findings that have identified that the sector is under-resourced and under-prepared and not able to deliver the care that we would wish under normal circumstances, what are your thoughts going into this about how the lockdown should work? I want to acknowledge that this is a complicated thing. There isn't a clear right answer, uh, but there are elements of it that are right. Like you, I was very concerned a couple of weeks ago when providers started as their first reaction locking down facilities, often without any notice or discussion with their families or residents, uh, which caused a great deal of distress and confusion. Not everyone did that, of course. There are some exemplary examples of providers taking a day or two to negotiate things with their residents and staff and, and families. But I did think it wasn't exactly the, the right place to start. The official guidance from the Commonwealth Government remains the guidance that was issued uh, about a week or so ago now, which is uh, no more than two visits at a time, one visit a day. Uh, they should be short visits. They should only be in the residence room. Obviously, no one who has any illness uh, or has any kind of reason to believe they might have had contact with the virus the issue, however, is that these things are not straightforward. If you do lock down and prevent anybody from coming in, uh, we have situations where residents in the last days of their life have not had family present. Uh, that's something that the Prime Minister specifically gave an example of as an exemption. It's very possible to do this safely. Think about the fact that staff are coming and going from a facility every day and are spending significant amounts of time in. It's possible to 
sanitise um, and otherwise safeguard family members on a restricted basis to be there for palliative care. Another example, Joe, is the spouse who has been coming in for quite some time daily, helping her demented spouse uh, with care, support and feeding. And indeed, that's actually almost de facto part of the staffing of the place. And again, we believe that can be done safely. Certainly, that's different in our view than situations where family are just coming for the social interaction. Their facilities ought to be doing what the government has recommended, which is setting up other ways of doing that by phone, by you know computers or iPads and so on, really facilitating that interaction so that the resident understands that the family members are still there, uh, just that the situation doesn't let them come in. Those are some of our thoughts at the moment. We are also hearing examples where some, this is not a majority, but where some providers are preventing residents from going out to medical and dental appointments. Again, with the cooperation of doctors and dentists, these things can be done very safely. And there are significant issues about the way in which those providers are following or not following the aged care standards. So, Ian, uh, my views, uh, as I said, have moved uh, further to, to restricting because of the devastation that we've seen in Spain, where the residents have died, the places have been deserted, the staff have become sick. And in terms of the, the basic principles of public health and my training in public health, the fundamental is to create such a barrier that you never get the infection and having more people come and go increases that risk. The other point I wanted to raise is the conversations I've had is that with families and others is they would be accepting of not visiting a facility, but their fear is that they don't know that their loved ones are going to receive the care that they need. And here again, the the findings from the Royal Commission create a, a significant breakdown in trust between family and the aged care sector. What are your thoughts about addressing that? Oh, absolutely, uh, that is true. We know, uh, and we have been raising this for years, and we're responsible for uh, engagement uh, with consumers and families being written into the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission Act, and we argued for that forcefully in the new standards. Uh, So the providers who have a really good, close engagement with their families and their residents and therefore also their staff, are finding that they can communicate these things and and share those concerns. And they are making the kinds of exemptions that I talked about just before. Doing that with very minimal disruption to them uh, and with those spouses, for example, or daughters being a support. I agree with you that we need to keep all unnecessary uh, interaction out. But the other thing that we have to do is make sure, firstly, that the situation you are talking about doesn't happen. That is, that the care for the resident deteriorates. We are starting to hear things about residents not being fed when they needed the help of a family member, uh, about there not being enough internal activities and significant deterioration, which you would be fully aware of, in residents' physical well-being after several weeks of lockdown. These things need to be addressed by the facility and then communicated with the family Uh, because otherwise what we will have, and we have heard some examples of this, 
uh, families trying to take their loved ones out? I think one of the things I've learned in my career is that asking people to trust you is very different to demonstrating that they can trust you. And I wonder whether now's the time for the more radical solutions and perhaps having people that are in monitoring care. And for example, I've not quite thought this idea through, but is it possible to have a member of the military in each aged care facility that is providing the eyes and ears for the families as a way to be that objective observer and provide that reassurance? I think the core of your idea, which is how could you have someone who essentially was a resident advocate looking out for that is a good one. Whether military people understand what's required in an aged care facility, um, I'm not sure, but there, there would be others for whom that would be an option. I think it, it is good that we have a conversation and we've been asking the provider peaks to be engaged in conversation with us about this. And we are talking fairly constantly now to the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission who are really trying to deal with this, recognising both sides of the dilemma that you've pointed out. The other area that really quite frightened me was the use of chemical and physical restraints. The British Geriatric Society have published new guidelines about the use of those in aged care and they have relaxed the conditions on their use. And in fact, my reading of it would say that they're actually sanctioning what I'd consider to be poor practice. Do you have a view on that? I have a very strong view on that. And yes, you're correct. Uh, we are beginning to hear reports of providers saying that they have no choice but to reintroduce chemical restraints. I haven't heard about physical restraints at the moment. We've made some very significant gains in the last year around physical and chemical restraint and guidelines on those. I would be very, very disappointed if those are lost now because of this situation. There are, we know, other tried, true, proper alternatives. While I'm sympathetic to the pressures under which the industry is operating, I continually point to the fact that there are providers who, who are in those same pressures who deliver, who don't restrain unless except when it's absolutely clinically necessary and who use other methods. So while they're doing it, we still think that the commission has to keep an eye on the people who decide that's the easy shortcut. My additional worries with that is the lack of access to general practitioners who presumably are going to be flooded with uh, work in the community. I worry that my profession in terms of geriatric medicine specialist will roll over on this issue because they say it's the only solution. And what I found in the past is that if you make an exception, people don't look to alternatives, don't, don't stretch their thinking, don't look for other ways to do things. So I'd be strongly advocating that we're not promoting the use of physical or chemical restraint and using the excuse that it must be done because there's no other way to control someone. I fully agree with that. It doesn't have to be used. It hasn't had to be used. The reason it has become so widely used is because it was an easy way out. And I agree with you, the exception is likely to turn into the norm if that's what happens. Just coming up to the end of the discussion, I wanted to raise the issue about how fast should we be acting? And as I've been stuck at home for the last 11 days going through all the literature and monitoring the Johns Hopkins website and seeing the numbers grow, and as I see that, I start to think that the ways that we normally do business aren't helping us and that we need to be far more imaginative 
and far more radical. So one of the phrases that has come to our team is to rescue aged care or to preserve it and to maintain the social fabric of our society, we need to do in the next 10 days what would ordinarily take us 10 years to do. How do we get that action going on that scale? I think we need to see some strong leadership from leaders in the sector pointing to the imaginative things that I'm aware are happening in some places. I also think uh, this is a bit pragmatic, but we actually have totally different guidelines around all of what we've been talking about across the different states and territories. This is both a Commonwealth and the state and territory crossover, and they need to get their act together very quickly because providers are understandably finding that confusing as our families. I think it is about sharing good pragmatic things and thinking, why can't we do that rather than, I don't know if we can do that. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Ian, given the the emergency situation that we're in and with the economic relief packages and the number of people that are unemployed, do you see a way that we can remobilise and, you know, even double the workforce in aged care to get us through this situation? Uh, The government is certainly working very hard on what they're calling surge workforce and replacement workforce. But I think uh, that we also ought to be looking at people in reserve, people being hired and trained quickly uh, who can do basic care, obviously having to be trained very quickly in good sanitation and hygiene, uh, which of course, as usually, is much higher level in a nursing home anyway. So I do think that that's an important issue. I'd be surprised if we see the kind of panic reactions Uh, that we have seen in some other countries like Spain. I think the Australian community will behave differently than that. I hope so. But we certainly need to be prepared for the need for a significant increased workforce. Um, And aged care may not be the highest on government priorities if there's a more widespread uh, need for workers. Ian, in all the time I've spent over the last week locked in my room going through it, I've always, I've been puzzled as to Is there work going on behind the scenes and I don't know about it? Or is there nothing happening? Because what I see covered in the media is so thin and so sketchy that I don't have a real sense that there is urgency to address the problems in aged care. How do you think we can improve the communication between what the uh, emergency response is and the community? Um, Firstly, can I say as someone who's been part of it is being part of it that there is a lot of work happening that isn't out there facing into the media i do think government uh, needs to solve the availability of personal protective equipment as an urgent factor and aged care is i'm pleased to say being prioritized in that context i think uh, all governments getting their messaging the same and consistent would be very helpful But I again think that the single most important factor in ensuring trust is the level of communication and trust that exists between the resident, the family and the facility in which they are. If that relationship is already good, then we are seeing people trusting what's going on and getting good communication from their facility. Uh, If it's not, then those facilities need to put in a lot more effort and they are probably the ones that we ought to be focusing on in terms of some of the measures that you've talked about, patient, you know, resident advocates, making sure that the commission is focused on them, not 
starting to slip on care standards. Thanks very much, Ian. Thanks very much for your time in this really busy and chaotic uh, period of our lives. And hopefully um, we'll, we'll see you at the end of it. You take care, Joe. Thanks very much, Ian.